Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as it really does help to give the show a little boost, and for that, I am very grateful. This week has been a little crazy. If you live in the UK, you will know that the beast from the east has struck with a vengeance and chaos has ensued everywhere. I myself was loving it until my boiler broke and now I'm wearing about 101 jumpers and I can't feel my fingers as I type. So apologies if you can hear my teeth chattering. Hopefully this week's episode will warm you up wherever you are. Keep warm, everyone. So my guest today is Thomasina Myers. In 2005, Thomasina was the first winner of the revamped MasterChef. She is now a chef and a food writer. She's the owner of Oaxaca, the seriously successful chain of Mexican restaurants. She's written seven books to date, has a regular column in The Guardian, has opened another chain of restaurants called DF Mexico. In total, she employs around 1,500 people. She has three young children and is basically superwoman. Welcome, Thomasina. (laughs) Definitely not super. (laughs) You are such a busy person with so many things going on. Do you get much time to sit back and reflect on the amazing things you've achieved? Or is that not really in your nature? I'm not very good at uh, reflecting, I don't think. My husband, Jake, said if I have a weekend catching up on sleep, then I've normally created a huge project by the end of it. (laughs) Quite dangerous, giving me too much time in my hands. Yeah, I was going to ask you, does the sound of being alone on a desert island fill you with dread or is it something you'd relish? I think I'd probably teach, try and teach myself all the languages of the animals so that I could chat to them. (laughs) Otherwise I might be a bit lonely. Yeah, you sound very resourceful, so I feel like you'd be fine. Uh, I think I am quite resourceful, although my father says I'm deeply impractical. Oh, really? But maybe that's just because I've had a very practical father and then husband. Okay. So I'm quite good at outsourcing. Yeah. (laughs) uh, And and, um, delegating. I'm a master of delegation. So why be practical if you've got other people around you who are practical? That are very wise words, yes. And um, let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the, the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, I used to do this dish, which is really underrated and quite 80s. Um, but I, I grew up cooking at home in the kitchen uh, because my mother didn't have much money. So she bought the same kind of ingredients every week. And it was always very seasonal. Yeah. So globe artichokes for supper when they were in season, um, courgettes, aubergine. It was a role of of the seasons, which was a lovely way to learn about food. But I particularly loved, I started learning how to um, cook aubergine and seeing how they transformed from this rather hard, tasteless, unforgiving vegetable into this soft, unctuous thing that when you roasted it with lots of olive oil in the oven became... A, a thing of total joy and deliciousness so I used to stuff them I chopped that out the flesh chopped them up with kind of tomatoes and slow cooked onions my mother was very good at teaching me how to slow cook an onion to bring mm. out the flavor that kind of thing and I would stuff them and cover them with breadcrumbs and parmesan and um and, and we'd bake those and have them with rice and it was such a simple 
I found it amazing the way very simple ingredients could be transformed into such deliciousness. Yeah. And so did you do most of the cooking growing up or was it sort of learning from your mom as you went along? Uh, I learned from my mother as I went along. So she was great at um, certain things. Like she used to make this really delicious mixture of rice, peas and bacon. Ooh. Where again, she would like get the onions until they tasted so great and then add garlic and like, you know, fry the rice in oil and then add the peas and the bacon and it was so simple, but so good. My father, when we grew up, grew up, just did one thing. And that was a really good omelette. And death became anyone who touched his omelette pan. <laughs> Serious trouble. Did he have a special technique or was it just... He just made a really killer omelette. And it was interesting because when we finally moved home, my mother said, right, I'm no longer cooking every night. You can start cooking. And he is now... He is such a great cook now. Really? Yeah. So now he cooks. He cooks the best pastry of any chef I've ever met. Oh my goodness. That's I mean, quite a claim. Yeah. On a par with Jeremy Lee. From Pro really? Gardens. Yeah. I mean, really good. So that's really fun. That How can as... we get our hands on his pastry? Ah, uh, I've got to come. <laughs> got to come to eat there. <laughs> so it sounded like the sort of childhood. I mean, your parents sounded like they were a lot of fun. And it sounded like your mum loved entertaining. Do you think that influenced your style of cooking today? I think... What was fun about them is they definitely taught me that uh, you don't have to spend a lot of money on ingredients to eat really well. Yeah. So a real treat would be uh, my father rushing off to a fishmonger and buying, you know, a couple of pints of prawns and my mother would make a mayonnaise and we'd have fresh baguettes and lots of butter and fresh, you know, the homemade mayonnaise and prawns. You know, that was a special treat and really it wouldn't have cost that much. My father was absolutely allergic to going out. Oh, really? For food, because he could just look at the menus and just see his money being pulled away. He, he hated spending money on average food. He couldn't see the point when at home you could cook such delicious food. Yeah. And I think I've really, I mean, I just love nothing better than having friends around this table and feeding them. It, it is such fun. And even if like a few weeks ago, I went to the dentist, I had a really like awful time at the dentist. I got back my friend had given me like eight times, eight chances to get out of cooking dinner for her new boyfriend yeah. and some friends. And I just kept thinking, but it'd just be more fun at home. So we could have gone out, but in the end, we stayed at home. I got out the mezcal, you know, we had lovely courses. And I love the ritual of cooking for people, like what you plan to start with, um, you know, the nibbles you might eat as they come in, the start of the main course, whether you're going to have cheese next or like pudding. It's such a fun way to just it's such a fun way to be yeah and I heard you say that for you cooking is kind of like your therapy yeah well I think I find it's really relaxing it's very meditative I think it's really important for human beings that we do uh, repetitive things that take our minds off our incredibly overly busy lives yeah and for me coming home at the end of the day and chopping an onion really relaxes me yeah. and gives <laughs> me a chance to get my head out of my laptop out of my phone and just be yeah. be in the moment. No, it's so true. So we've kind of already touched on this, but the second desert island dish is the first dish that you learned to cook. So the two things that I first learned to cook with my mother were a white sauce, a bechamel. Yeah. And then obviously the slow cooking the onions. Because with those two things, I learned the secret to many different dishes. Yeah. And my mother really taught me the secret of bechamel, which is to really cook out the flavor of the flour first, yeah. and brown it in the butter, um, which is what you need to do making, making gravy too, which is another thing she, she taught me really early on. So I think once you've got a few basics in your repertoire, 
you can really branch out and cook so many things. And I think that's what I try and tell people when I'm talking about food and why I wrote Home Cook last year. Because really, once you've got a few of those basics mastered, there's such freedom in, in cooking and you can eat so well. And again, I keep always coming back to the fact you don't need to spend a fortune because I think people are bewitched by exotic ingredients these days and how all this food looks so incredible. And I think there's a politicization of food that it's, you know, about the the rich people eating well and the poor not eating well. I just want everyone having the tools to be able to feed themselves because it's a survival thing eating. Definitely. And you, it's pleasure. For me, it's all pleasure and I'm greedy. So that's why I love (laughs) to cook. But it's also, you know, if you eat well, you're feeding your mind and your body. And there's a lot of mental illness in my family. And, you know, the link is so clear between good mental health and good food and good physical health we know about because it costs the NHS, you know, a third of its budget goes on obesity and diabetes, which is an insane waste of money. Yeah. Uh, So I'm involved in a few really exciting food education projects too. And I really think it's got to start in schools because if you miss out learning to cook when you're young, it's so much harder. Yeah, definitely. And you're so right. Like your mum sounds like a very wise woman because those basic recipes, they are the key to so many other things. Are your daughters at the age where you're thinking about teaching them to cook or are they still a bit young? No, I mean, it's really fun. Ottie uh, is four, uh, nearly five, and she is already really excited about it. And, and that's fun. And, and my eldest was very standoffish about it, but suddenly is doing cooking um, after school club oh, at really? school. Oh, really? That's so fun. And her son got really into it. And it, it's amazing how you can... It's such fun for them making a pesto. So fun. And I, and I don't really understand why you would buy a jar of pasteurized pesto when it's so quick to make one. It's so quick and the taste just isn't even... Like, they're completely different... Yes, they are totally different. Let's talk a little bit about your path to world domination. So you must have been very brainy because you went to the prestigious St. Paul's School. And when you left there, it sounded like you took a few years to figure out what you wanted to do. But it was around this time that you went to Mexico for the first time and you fell in love with the food. What about Mexican food and their way of eating was it that you loved so much? The second I arrived in Mexico, it struck a chord with me because it is like many nations of incredible cuisines. Their food is steeped in in their culture. And growing up as I did with both my grandmothers also cooking incredible food, food was such a part of how we lived. And in Mexico, you cannot escape food. So the second you arrive there, your taxi driver will start telling you what state he came from and what his grandmother used to cook for him. Oh, really? And when people don't know about Mexican food, I I always make that link with Italy because it's very familiar to us, that nonna cooking of the grandmother and how regional Italian food is. But Mexico is exactly the same, um, except it's a larger country and it's got a bigger biodiversity. So uh, it's one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. The ingredients, the wealth of ingredients is insane. 200 varieties of chilies, scores and scores of different varieties of corn, whether they're black or blue or white or red, lots of tropical fruit, wild herbs, wild greens, tomatoes, you know, zucchini plants and pumpkins and, you know, you name it. It's yeah. Like, but vanilla and cacao, which they do nothing with. Like, I always feel like I should wrap it, 
that you know the people who run Mexico wrap them over the knuckles <laughs> and go, "You've got two of the most expensive ingredients in the world, and you're not doing anything with them." It's just completely insane. So, I, I, I was surprised when I was researching you, like. Uh, quite how amazing the ingredients are from you talking about how difficult it is to source stuff over here because we feel so spoiled over here and you think you have everything at your fingertips but it just sounds like a completely different ball game yeah I think I was slightly terrorized when we started Oaxaca because I my flatmate was a head chef at the river cafe and I always had this wonderful dream of opening a river cafe for Mexican food and I just realized every time I went back to Mexico that it was impossible because the ingredients out there are so incredible. Mm. Uh, And that is why the best chefs around the world now are going to Mexico in droves just to discover the food because it's so insanely good. But it's the ingredients are so exciting and you cannot transport those ingredients back. Apart from the fact it's just totally ecologically, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, not practical or good. You, you know, they just would wilt, wilt and die. And the idea of, you know, flying ingredients over the world doesn't kind of chime with my... No, it doesn't fit in with your business ethos. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, so I think we went for street food. It was quite a kind of decision. Uh, and also, I think what's fun about cooking these days, I, I did a banquet for Wilderness last year, and it was really my food. And it's really fun when I do those one-off events because my food is very seasonally driven, I guess, like any Balimlu alumni yeah. <laughs> would be. But then bringing those touches of, you can, with Mexican food, you can bring in those wonderful dry chilies that do ship really well over months. And you can add wonderful touches with the chilies and the herbs and, and the fresh lime. So it, it's quite fun and creative. Yeah. Experiment with that. And is it right that your dad encouraged you to be a VAT consultant? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then a fortuitous meeting with Clarissa Dixon-Wright changed everything. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that was miserable, the VAT consultancy. (laughs) I really struggled in my 20s. I was was quite depressed and um, had no idea what I wanted to do. And whenever I meet people in their 20s, I, I always try and tell them, just to not lose heart because it's so difficult. Even people in their 50s still are thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, So the idea that someone at 20 knows, I think we expect to know we're in our 20s. And it's only with age comes the wisdom that one really never knows what one's doing. (laughs) So, um, but I did, I was very lucky. I was in a catwalk show with Clarissa. Uh, She was modeling a barber coat and I was modeling a barber bikini. Oh, a barber and, bikini. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wish I kept on to it. That would have been funny. Uh, and she she was brilliant because I was so confused at that stage. I was kind of 26. Lots of my friends seemed to be forging quite fast in different directions. Yeah. And I was going nowhere. So stressful. Very fast. Yeah, really stressful. And she was amazing. And she was one who recommended Ballymaloo, which really changed my life. Yeah. Right. That seems a good time to pause and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Well, there are a few dinners in or lunches that have really stuck out in my memory. And normally it's the setting as well. But I do remember uh, going to one incredible restaurant in northern Spain called Asador Extabari, which someone had told me I should go and eat at. And I am I am not one of those people who globe trots eating in the best 50 restaurants around the world okay um because i guess i'm bringing up three children it seems better to spend money on their clothes yeah. than it does and then you know it costs a lot of money these 
these dinners. But someone told me about this place and I just said to my husband, why don't we try it? So it's quite unusual for us to go on this mission and we drove 45 minutes. And what I loved about this place is I'm not mad about 40 course menus. Yeah. I don't even want 20 courses. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, five or six is plenty for me. I want to remember everything I've eaten. And I find if I've got 20 courses with matching wines, by the end of it, I'm so sozzled. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to remember anything. <laughs> this space is, uh, the kitchen is tiny. And there's two huge bread ovens on one side of the kitchen and grills on the other where they have three different flavored woods, cherry and an oak and, and something else. And they smoke or roast everything over these fires or in the wood burning ovens. And so everything, and this was 10 years ago, kind of before all this cooking over fire and grill thing became so cool and trendy. Yeah. So they were kind of ahead of their time. They built the kitchen themselves. Mm. You could only fit two chefs in there. And the very small tasting menu was kind of six or seven courses. And each course was almost like one ingredient. So the most incredible crusty bread with some home smoked butter, you know, first course. Second course, a spoonful of home smoked caviar, you know, with maybe a bit of cow's curd on. Every single ingredient from the menu came from the hills around the restaurant. You know, their own pimenton, they'd, they'd pluck the chilies and smoke them themselves on the fires. And it was such a pure meal, but the f- food tasted so good. And I, I, you know, I just, I love that. And I think it's quite boring when you grow up and you talk to these great cooks you really admire and they go on and on about the simple yeah. simplicity <laughs> of good food and how you don't have to do too much to good ingredients. But it's true. Yeah. It really is true. <laughs> so it's a cliche it is, for a reason. <laughs> it is a cliche for a reason. And it's great. You know, it's great going to incredible restaurants. You know, I've been to incredible meals at the Clove Club, which I'm a huge fan of. I still remember the char grilled venison chop I had at Gymkhana, kind of rich in tandoor spices. You know, there are so many delicious things with spices, and I love chilies and spices. But, but it is about the ingredients. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you love chilies and spices doesn't come as a huge surprise. Yeah. <laughs> you went to Ballymaloo in 2002. And after that, you spent time traveling around Ireland making cheese and sourdough bread. But before we talk about that, can we just talk about the fact that the cheese you're making was gabine, which has to be the best cheese in the whole world? Gabine cheese. <laughs> that was really fun. So that was my job straight out of um, Ballymaloo. I couldn't bear the idea of leaving my Irish dream and going back to London so soon. So I got a job in this wonderful dairy on the kind of west, west coast of Ireland. And it was just magic. But I had to prove myself. And I remember the first day going into this dairy of very weathered, uh, um, middle-aged and older women who kind of looked me up and down with my English accent (laughs) with much disdain and disapproval. (laughs) And I thought to myself... The only way I'm going to show them is by just breaking my back with hard work and proving them. And, um, and I did. I, I, I broke them down and we made very good friends out there. Yeah, and, I, can, I can imagine cheese making isn't an easy job. Oh, it's really tough. Mm. I mean, heaving vats of ways and curds and it's, it's pretty backbreaking. Uh, and it's definitely not glamorous uh, in your kind of white plastic no. <laughs> gloves and aprons and hairnets. Uh, <laughs> but it's immensely satisfying. And there is a magic to making cheese, like making bread, actually. Yeah. Similar things. It's the bacteria in the air that 
makes the flavor so good. Yeah. So, and then after that, you managed the shop. Uh, the laundry was my first job from Ireland. Uh, and in fact, I, I got the job in Ireland because oh, right. uh, from my cheese making job, I managed to blag my way into an Irish food fair on the cheese stand uh-huh. for the Irish government, chatting about all the incredible Irish cheeses. And, and really, they were leading the way mm. at that time on these wonderful artisan cheeses. And I learned a lot about them when I was there. And I managed to persuade this American to hire me. So I ran her shop for a bit and actually had a great fun because at that time, Henrietta Green was doing her food lovers fairs. And I uh, got a stall on those fairs and Angus, who turns out to be a neighbor where I am now, used to be the baker of the laundry. Oh, right. And in those days, he would every morning make his own croissant and pain au chocolat and parisin, pain au monde, and all these wonderful loaves. And it was an incredible bakery before all this amazing bread that was all over London. Uh, and we used to sell it in those markets. That's and so cool. It was really fun. And then you entered MasterChef. Talk us through, like, how did that come about? Well, I think I had no idea what I was doing. And I had, I'd, I'd done Ballet Malou. I'd worked in Valandry for a bit. I knew I needed to do something different. I went back to Mexico. I, I lived in Mexico for a year to really explore the food but with no real game plan I didn't really know what I was doing just kind of following my nose a bit uh and very broke in the in the process I I got back from Mexico I'd done a soup book for charity called Soup Kitchen that took two years and I really was quite in debt at this stage and a bit desperate and I just was reading a food magazine because I thought I'd try food writing and I saw this little advert twinkling at me it was a bit embarrassing. I didn't think much of it. I entered, didn't tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to the audition and they suddenly said, you're on. <clears throat> and then the perils and terrors of MasterChef happened. <laughs> ah, that's, uh, that's amazing. So you didn't really think about it too much. You just applied, went with the flow and just... Well, it was a bit of a joke because I used to, I used to watch Lloyd Graceman and MasterChef. Yeah. And which was quite a fuddy-duddy stayed competition on television And, you know, in my 20s, I didn't watch television, having been an addict when I was young. You know, I was too busy rushing around cooking, I guess. And and so when I went onto the set the first morning, I remember being a bit flippant and blasé about it. It was all a bit of a joke. And then it was quickly not a joke when we got into the studio and these huge cameras rolled out. And John said, right, you need to make the best mashed potato (gasps) I've ever tasted. And nine of us started quaking in our shoes. (laughs) And we all made the, the most horrendous lumpy mashed potato, <laughs> every one of us. Luckily, mine one tasted good. And I remember saying to John, I know it's lumpy, but taste the flavor, the butter, the seasoning. You must know I can cook by the flavor of it. You know, he, he, he got me three on that. So. And, and then you won the whole thing, which is amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was terrifying. It was so terrifying, that show. Talk about having your heart on your sleeve. Uh, you know, because cooking is so deeply personal. It is, it's like stripping yourself bare. Yeah. And to be filmed with every blunder yeah, kind of on very, display. Very stressful. It was quite stressful. But but that thing of having to take a deep breath and just keep on going, I think was a really good life lesson mm. and definitely taught, taught me well for Oaxaca later on. Definitely. Moving on to the most important question of the day. It's the fourth desert island dish. What is your favorite sandwich? I mean, this one's so easy. Oh. I grew up 
on Saturdays, we'd have sandwich making competitions at home. <laughs> so um, my father would cut the bread and then we'd all get to play around with all the different ingredients. And my sandwiches were so massive. <laughs> I would literally put every single condiment and chutney and cheese and lettuce and salami and you could almost not eat them. And then my uncle would kind of waltz in every other week or something making these tiny perfect ones but part of the ritual was on the weekends on the Saturdays we didn't do that competition we just do a BLT okay and my grand one of my grandmothers lived in Wales and we would always go to the butcher in near her and he would cut wafer thin slices of streaky smoked bacon and we would take vast amounts of them back and put them in the freezer because nowhere else could you get the thinness that thin cut the poor man must have taken him hours every time (laughs) we came and so my mother would fry that streaky bacon till it was crisp and and tasting delicious she would make a tomato salad by uh, covering the tomatoes in boiling water skinning them slicing them and then um sprinkling salt brown sugar black pepper Ooh. and a few teaspoons of uh, red wine vinegar on them. And that was a tomato salad. And then she would get iceberg and toss it in liberal amounts of Hellman's mayonnaise. Ooh, and then she would put all those things out on the table. And then it was up to us to make our own BLTs as we wanted to. That sounds like a very good family tradition. I like the sound of that. Well, it, such a simple thing became so utterly utterly delicious and yeah it it, it's still I think I I hardly make them anymore actually I do have a penchant for blue cheese and um a tomato and scotch bonnet jam but it was a great thing yeah I like the idea of tossing the iceberg straight into the man like saving you any bother for having to spread the mayonnaise on your bread (laughs) Uh, yeah it was wonderful it was like kind of total DIY yeah I love that So you'd open your first Oaxaca in 2007, but I wondered at which point along the journey did you decide that that's what you'd like to do? Like, had it always been in the back of your mind that opening a restaurant was a sort of life dream? So I, growing up, all my friends used to say, when you open a restaurant. Oh, really? And I always looked at them like they were nuts because as far as I knew, it was a really uh, awful job. Uh, long hours you never saw your friends uh, ripe for failure and so I thought they were kind of nuts and it was almost one of those things that I tried so hard not to do it (laughs) and yet it just I kind of was like a moth you know going round and round circles then coming ever closer never closer and actually it was the only thing I could do in the end because I tried so many jobs and I just couldn't make anything work I mean I was working an incredibly cool digital agency in the middle of Soho at the height of the dot-com boom. Oh yeah. Bored, senseless. (laughs) So, you know, I think cooking was actually the only thing I could do. And you teamed up with your business partner who is a friend from university. Yeah. How did that come about that you sort of decided that you would go into this amazing business together? We didn't know each other that well at university, but we got reintroduced by a friend and he was playing around with a few ideas and at that stage, I'd done MasterChef. I was working at uh, Sky Gingels, Pisham Nurseries, having a really incredible time with all the seasonal food. And Mexican had become a slightly faded memory because it's very true that if you are not eating the food, it's hard to remember how good it is. Yeah. And there was no Mexican in London. And so it was, it was hard to, to remember and justify to myself how good it was. Yet when I met Mark, he'd been to Mexico on his gap year too. And we went out there together on a bit of a recce. And it was really a kind of 
a moment where I was reminding myself of all these incredible places and for the first time thinking we could actually do this and make it happen. Yeah, that's so cool. And how important was it to have a business partner? Do you think you could have done it on your own or is that something that you would never even have contemplated? For me, it was amazing having a business partner. Mark and I are very different. So our skill sets are complementary. Yeah. uh, As in, he's good at all the things I'm really bad at. So I think we work very well together. I mean, it's definitely teething problems. I think when you start out business with people, we had a a woman who came a couple of times just to kind of sort out our differences. Because it's like going into a marriage. Yeah. And sometimes you need help. Yeah. It's working out how to work together. Uh, So that was a really brilliant thing you know, working how to work together within our different characters. Uh, but also sharing the workload and the worry is is a big thing for me. And I I think, you know, leaving your ego at the door, it's great to share things. Yeah. You know, it's more fun to share the fun and to share the worry definitely. Uh, for me. And it, it definitely made it a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. A lot of people say, starting a business as a solo entrepreneur it can be very lonely so like you say being able to share that with someone the highs and the lows is probably a very comforting thing the fifth desert island dish is the dish that you eat the most often so we shop at our local market if we're in london on sundays and i just buy what looks good and a lot of that is vegetables um, because that's what's so exciting about the changing seasons. Yesterday in the market, there were those wonderful Rosetta sprouts, um, which are like the Brussels sprouts, Ooh, yes. but they're the flower ones. Um, there were sprout tops. There was lovely radicchio there and incredible celeriacs and pumpkins still in season. And then the new juice and artichokes that are in now, the wild garlic. And it's it's really fun and affordable to just buy loads of vegetables and then, um, you know, the eggs from the lovely happy chickens. So generally in the evenings, often I will just braise a seasonal vegetable in lots of garlic and olive oil, maybe some chili and um, or, or roast it. But in a frying pan's the quickest. Yeah. And I'll eat that with a fried egg on top yeah. and maybe with some tahini and, and fresh lemon and chipotle or I'll have it with with just a drizzle of chili oil or some goat's curd and salsa verde from whatever herbs are in my kitchen drawers, fridge drawers, that is. So it normally is vegetarian during the week, but then at the weekends, if we have friends, I'll do something more special. Yeah. I'm definitely not vegetarian. I love I love meat, but I think um, I don't feel the need to eat it all the time. Yeah. It's quite expensive. Yeah. Takes longer to cook and it's not particularly great for the planet. Definitely. You know, if we eat meat all the time. And actually, I just love the feeling of healthiness I get from eating loads of vegetables. I mean, I eat a lot and I douse everything in lots of butter and olive oil (laughs) and fat is delicious. I grew up, my grandmother's a model. She had a lot of fat with everything, cream in her coffee and lots of butter. She sounds like my kind of woman. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think fat's really underrated. Yeah. That's the best. Can we talk a bit about your maternity leaves? Because it's been said that you are, you have a habit of doing a power maternity leave, which isn't a term I'd come across before, but you wrote books in several of your pregnancies and maternity leaves. And in one, you reared pigs for the pig project. Can you tell us about that? It sounds really awful that I think my first maternity leave, I was so terrified by the loneliness of being at home all day with a small baby. That's really why 
I, I think that's what propelled me to write a book in that maternity leave. I I sound horrid in that no, description. Oh my god, no, it doesn't. No, it no, no, no. So impressive. But 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 you know, I, I just think it's really important. If other women are listening to this, that sounds really high powered and unattainable, and it, it's not like that. But I think that loneliness of having a child is so massive, and the depression that can come after um, pregnancy. Uh, and I think that terrified me. Okay. So um, writing a book in the first one was an excuse to get a nanny to help me a few hours a day. So I wasn't alone. That was really the motivation. And and then, and it became then a pattern that every time I got pregnant, I managed to sign a book deal. It was kind of accidental. <laughs> but I think when I wasn't on maternity leave from Oaxaca and working less at Oaxaca, I didn't really have time to write books. So it seemed like a really good opportunity yeah. to get a book in because I really do love writing books. And the pig project kind of slipped into the second maternity leave. It did make it a bit punishing. And I definitely don't recommend doing huge projects when you've got a baby. No. And I tried to learn with the third one to do less because uh, it is quite fun enjoying your baby. Did you um, succeed? For the third maternity leave, I managed to give my book in the day after uh, Isadora was born. So I thought I kind of worked that. I basically wrote it when I was pregnant at night when I couldn't sleep. But um, I've forgotten about the editing. There's still oh. quite a lot of editing of a book. <laughs> but it was definitely more light than the second one. The second one with the whole pig idea project, that was a bit intense. So the third one, it, I definitely it was the lightest one. And I really loved hanging out. By that stage, babies are less scary. And I just really relished every moment. Yeah. I mean, when the time comes, I can imagine just lying on a sofa being fed hot cross buns. But I feel like maybe you're going to inspire me to be more proactive it cannot be underrated how good it is lying on the sofa oh, yeah. eating hot cross buns <laughs> and breastfeeding <laughs> I, that was definitely a highlight <laughs> let's talk about the sixth desert island dish and that's your go-to dinner party dish oh uh, yeah so i am always running around and busy so i like these days to have a dinner party dish that is forgiving and for me something slow cooked is the most forgiving yeah because you can put it in the oven and pretty much forget about it and then get on and do all the other million things you have to do, uh, look after your children as yeah. well, <laughs> and then and then bring it out. And I think particularly lamb is one of my favorite meats because uh, it's got so much flavor, um, even mutton. And uh, you know, I've talked about my love of spices. I love the way uh, a shoulder of lamb can be classic with anchovy and rosemary and garlic. Or you can rub it in a paste of dried Mexican chilies and, and make it very Mexican. Or you can do a wonderful Indian spices or wonderful Moroccan spices. And you can really go with your mood with one cut of yeah. meat uh, and generally just put the same technique on. So you can yeah. do it without thinking uh, with your eye shot, as it were. And so something like a slow cut shoulder of lamb, you know, you can marinate the night before in the spices that you feel feel like yeah. your flight of fancy and then and then pop it in the oven. And and I I love starting with a salad. If I've got time, I'll do a delicious kind of salad, delicious seasonal ingredients in and a wonderful dressing. Although these days I seem to have less and less time. Well I was gonna say, where does this time come from? I can't imagine like you're so busy. Yeah, I, I think yeah, there seems to be less time. Even if there's a you know, a pack of kettle chips is fine when people walk in. Yep. People um, love kettle chips. On Saturday night, I had found some old nuts in the larder and <laughs> I just tossed them in some rosemary and fennel seeds yeah. and olive oil and maple syrup and pimenton and roasted them in the oven. And that was a really lovely little thing. It took five minutes. My nanny's 
so addicted to them this morning. She was asking me for the recipe. Oh, really? I mean, it literally took that five minutes. really good. So again, home cook was all about these, you know, one method, lots of different ways of changing it around. Yeah. A really easy way to do, you know, chicken livers in the freezer or smoked codsway in the freezer from the market. Take then 10 minutes to turn into a delicious, you know, boozy chicken liver pate or a wonderful smoky codsway with fresh lemon and olive oil. Those make really easy starters. Yeah, and delicious. And then the puddings are always easy. So yeah, often, what do you do? well, often it's just vanilla ice cream bought with some baked rhubarb or with a mezcal and dark chocolate sauce. And then, and then cheese is really good. But then, you know, I've got a whole vat of quince in a pan there because I'm making this year's batch of quince jam. Yum. Which, you know, just one homemade jar of quince jam on a cheese board makes it feel quite special. Yeah, so good. So I think you're so right. Like you don't need to overcomplicate home cooking. And no. that's what your beautiful book shows so clearly. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a late, like a huge labor. No, no, just a few simple things. I mean, my dressing, you can see my French dressing is in a cup oh, yeah. jar there. I just ready make a to huge go. vat of it, ready to go. Yes. But to make life easy for yourself. Yeah, definitely. So you said in an interview that both your husband and your business partner describe you, and this is a direct quote, as a total ball breaker. <laughs> and do you think that's part of being a woman in business? Do you think you kind of, you have to act in a way where you are described as that because that's kind of what's needed? I mean, it's so <laughs> funny hearing that because if you talk to any of my friends, they just laugh because I'm such a fool and so silly. Do you feel like, I mean, is that an accurate quote? Do you think that is how at work they would describe you or is that something that's just been plucked out of I think that might be just with them okay <laughs> which is awful to say but my business partner does say that I'm he's never sees me as tough on anyone else apart from him and I guess your husband gets you late at night yeah. when you're most tired and sees the worst of you but I think the one thing I am you know in 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 the need to delegate and and be efficient I am really bad at email I write, you know, very short one-line answers to things and I'm I'm you know never on Facebook chatting to friends because I just I don't have the headspace for it. So I probably am quite efficient with w- what I do with my time, but I think you have to be when you have a family and a career. Yeah, because there's not much time for anything else. No. And you have to prioritize. Yeah. And then I think probably my staff at Oaxaca would say I'm pr- pretty militant on the m- menus probably because it's really important food and I I think with food the difference between really great food and really average food is actually quite small it's just in in small details and if you're not quite militant about those small details the food can very quickly become quite bad yeah that's so true it just when I read that quote I don't know if I'm just like reading too much into it but it just made me feel it made me think so often like if a man behaves a particular way and then a woman does we're sort of labeled as a bit demanding or bitchy or bossy but actually it's just a way that you have to act in business sometimes isn't it and it's sort of irrelevant which gender you are but I feel like maybe that's labels that we're sometimes given yeah I think women will really suffer from that I mean yeah a ball breaker is a is a is a kind of slightly derogative way and, and hysterical. Yeah. You know, women often called hysterical when no. they get, you know, when they find something, a, a cause that's important to them. Yeah. And emotional. Uh, yeah. Emotional. <laughs> like surely emotions are good. Otherwise you're a robot. Well, yeah. Uh, and I think 
there is this very misogynistic way of labeling, particularly women who've got anywhere. Mary Beard, when she talks about um, women in power, I, I find it fascinating. And, and just the vilification she gets when she dares to talk about these subject matters yeah, shows you the levels of misogyny out there. I, I'm not more pro-women than I am pro-man. No. I think what feminism should be is about equality, equality that men and women are equal. So I think um, all women in a kitchen is incredibly bitchy and horrendous, just as all men in a kitchen can be very macho and horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> the greatness, you know, the, the power of a good mix of men and women is when you get a huge synergy yeah. in a business. And I think the trouble is that we don't get so many good mixes because the moment women start having children, they're immediately handicapped by the cost of childcare, which is, I think, in this country, we've got the most expensive childcare in the world, yeah. as far as I know. So we are severely handicapped, which means there are much less women in the echelons of power, which means it is very male-dominated still, which is, which is a real shame, actually, because I think the mixture of the sexes makes for the best combination. Definitely. Yeah, very well said, Thomasina. We're on to the last, the final seventh desert island dish, and that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I mean, this is so hard, but I did make some very garlicky and creamy Dauphinoise potatoes this weekend. Yep. And I think if I could have those with a very delicious steak, a little local restaurant called Six Portland Road makes a Cafe de Paris butter with thyme and cognac and anchovies in it. Um, I would char grill a T-bone steak probably and eat them with my Dauphinoise and have a really bitter leaf, delicious, crisp, lettuce salad with a really yummy vinaigrette on it oh my god that sounds amazing I know that. Yeah. <laughs> would you have a pudding i'd have masses of cheese afterwards and biscuits and i definitely have pudding i'd have to have some chocolate um and some mezcal well yeah push the boat out it's yeah final meal yeah definitely. <laughs> and you're allowed to take with you one luxury item that can be anything you like well i've got my salt and plentiful supply from the sea yeah so it would have to be olive oil which i drink by the bucket load so uh i can't imagine life without it yeah that's yeah. a great luxury item thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes thank you for having me <laughs> so i want to eat thomasina's last meal immediately if not before and i take great comfort in the fact that it took her a while to figure out what she wanted to do there is no one path to success and that's a good reminder for us all i think have a wonderful week everyone Thank you for downloading this episode. Don't forget to rate and review. And of course, tell all your friends. Thank you and goodbye.